1 John chapter 2. We'll get into the message. I am great when it comes to preaching. When it comes to remembering introductions and making sure I cover every base, I'm not really good at it. So my wife tends to prompt me if I forget something. 1 John chapter 2. Pastor Cook asked me to preach, and I had this message, just this topic on my heart at the time. And so when I got home and I pulled up my computer to start working on a message, this is the message that I, I just, I've been thinking so much about this topic. And it's a very familiar passage. We all, we all know it, probably by heart. But I find that in the Word of God, it's those passages that we're the most used to, Right? The cliche ones, the ones that are kind of like, you know, John 3.16, right? The, the ones that we hear so much that I think we miss the importance of. We miss the truth of it because we hear it so much. We kind, of, we kind of close our mind to it, right? But when you really, when you really get to, to, to the nuts and bolts of it, right? Like my, my favorite verse of the Bible, and for years I, I probably didn't have a favorite verse of the Bible. But when I settled on one... It was one that I've heard so much in my life. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But the more I pondered that verse, and one time I was preaching on that verse, that's when it became my favorite verse. When I preached on it, and, I, and, I, and as I was preaching, the Lord sunk it into my heart. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I was preaching at the prison, a place where men stood condemned, Right? And I preached that message, and my notes went out the door. And I said, guys, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? It's not like a pardon, right? Like with a pardon, you admit your guilt. To be pardoned, you have to admit your guilt. And so you're, you're set free from the penalty in a pardon, but you're still guilty. You did it. You plead. You have to admit your guilt, right? Christ didn't pardon us, I told the guys. He declared us not guilty. He wiped that we didn't do those sins. We didn't break his law. We didn't sin against him. As far as he's concerned, it's as if we've never sinned. So he didn't just set us free from our sin. He didn't reverse the sentence on us. He declared us not guilty by taking himself the penalty of our sin. And when that sunk into me that day in the prison, I left there thinking, that's my favorite verse of the Bible. There is no condemnation. I will never be condemned. I will never be judged. I will never be held guilty. When God looks at me, right, though I'm not perfect, and as a witness, I brought my wife. I'm not perfect. But when God looks at me, my position before him is, I've never sinned. I am sinlessly perfect in my position because when we're saved, we're united to Jesus Christ. So his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So God the Father treats me like he treats Jesus. He views me like he views Jesus. And because of that, Jesus can't be condemned. I can't be condemned. So there's no condemnation on me. That's a verse I heard. I grew up in Christian school and church. I heard it a million times and never thought anything of it. Until that one day when it sunk down into my heart. And I realized God has forever removed the guilt 
as if I never did it in the first place. So, as we look at this one here in 1 John chapter 2, it's such a familiar passage. I don't want us to miss the message we're getting from it. 1 John 2, and we're looking at verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Mark this phrase down. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay? Hold on to that in your life. Because we are so tempted, right, by this world, so easily drawn away. And how easy is it for us? I'll get to it here in a little bit. I won't jump too far ahead, but how easy is it for us who are saved, right, to say, well, I've got a time and place. I accepted Christ in my heart. I'm a Christian. I went to church for years, right? And you all know people. I know people who, are, who, who are profess Christ, who today would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm saved, but they're living in sin, right? They're living away from the Lord. But the Bible says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, hold on to that. Because when I check myself, when I'm tempted to be drawn into this world, when I'm tempted to be drawn into sinfulness, you know one word that, that echoes in my mind? If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a scary word. That's a scary phrase. Think about that. You say, well, I, I'm saved, okay? I'm not here to make you doubt your salvation. But I am here to say that in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, do we not do this, 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 and this? And he didn't say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, remember, these weren't fake Christians. These weren't people who were going to church on Sunday and then going out to the clubs and picking up prostitutes on Saturday, Right? These are people fully convinced that they're saved. Even have good works to show for themselves. So when I'm tempted to sin, this phrase echoes in my mind. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's go on. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness, mercy, and your grace shed so abundantly on us who are gathered here this morning. May you speak to our hearts, and may Jesus be glorified among us. In his name we ask this, and amen. So, it's a very familiar but important passage. Uh, the book of 1 John, you may have, I don't know, is Pastor Cook teaching through 1 John here? Yeah, okay. Okay, I thought he may be. So that you may have heard some of this, you may not, and that's fine. I, I just felt like we need to get back into this again. But the book of 1 John was written as an answer to the rise of Gnosticism within the early church. Okay? One aspect of this doctrine taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. The result of this belief meant that anything done in the body was okay because it didn't affect your spirit. So you could sin outwardly and your spirit would still be righteous. You can live however you wanted to, right? And it didn't affect your spirit at all. Because matter was inherently evil. And this is why the Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus had a physical body. Okay? If you, um, Paul was also fighting Gnosticism within uh, Colossians. You see it there where he emphasizes the body, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. 
John emphasizes it. He says, if anybody, anybody denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's not of God. Because the Gnostics believe that since matter is inherently evil and spirit is inherently good, right? So if matter is inherently evil, God could not take on a human body. So Jesus was only a spirit who appeared to be physical, but he wasn't really. Which is why Paul emphasizes throughout Colossians, no, 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 no. If Jesus wasn't real, physical, human, we're not saved. Because we're saved, we're reconciled by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. He emphasizes that. John emphasizes the same thing. So he's telling them, don't be drawn to the world, okay? This was something that was going on in the early church. They were being drawn to the world and drawn to sinful pleasures and lusts because they were being taught by these false teachers that it's okay. It doesn't affect your spirit at all. Live however you want to. It's all physical matter. It's all evil. Or that's naturally evil anyways. So the Gnostics are drawing people away from the church and holiness to pursue a love of the world because as far as they were concerned, it had no effect on them. The Bible speaks in no uncertain terms about where our love should be. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, if you love others more than him, you're not worthy of him, right? So we're to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as the Bible teaches. The world draws at us not only to live in it, but to celebrate it, okay? Listen, if you're going to be a Christian in the 21st century, you need to understand this. The world is not neutral on spiritual issues, okay? It's not. It does not play, well, they want you to think that. Well, religion, they're over here, but we're just, we're just neutral, man. No, the world's not that way. Okay, the world, worldliness, secularism, humanism is a religion, okay? They're not neutral. Uh, this world wants you to celebrate it, embrace it, and conform to it. It doesn't want your acceptance. It says that. It doesn't. It wants your loyalty. It wants your fidelity. It wants your worship. And if you worship something other than this world system, you're an outcast, you're the one that's bad. You're narrow-minded. You're the bigot, right? Because they're the open-minded ones. They're open to everything but Jesus Christ. And as I'm going to say, say in just a minute, I'm going to say probably, I may say it several times today. They're okay with religion. The secular world is not anti-religion. It's not. It's anti-Jesus. Okay, it's anti a religion who claims to be the only way to God. Because it's a polytheistic, the world system is a polytheistic religion. Have as many gods as you want. Just don't have one that says he's the only one. Because he condemns us for the way that we want to live our lives. So the world's not neutral. It draws at us. Uh, Solomon is a great example in the Bible of somebody who poured himself into a love of the world. Think about this. He had everything a person could want. Anybody today who follows after the world is seeking what Solomon had. What did he have? Well, he had all the women you could want. 1 Kings 11.1. 1. He had 700 wives plus 300 concubines. The world wants you to chase after sex. Solomon had that. He had a luxurious home, 1 Kings 7.1-6. He had vehicles, or in his case, chariots and riders, 1 Kings 10, 26. He had money beyond our wildest dreams. 2 Chronicles 1, 15. said he made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Y'all ever seen Jerusalem? There's some stones and rocks there. 
He made silver and gold as plenteous as stones and rocks in a stony and rocky place. Oh, he had money and wealth. He had fame and renown that spanned the ocean, 1 Kings uh, 4.31. Today, kids are trying to make it famous, aren't they, on things like social media. They're trying, everyone's trying to be famous, and everyone's making these little videos and putting them out there hoping to get viral and get famous. Solomon got famous across the ocean before there was social media or television. They heard. He was so wealthy. They heard about him across the ocean. Listen to the opulence of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2.10. Whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Basically, Solomon says, if I saw it and wanted it, I treated myself. I treated myself. I held back nothing from myself that brought me joy. Now, listen to Solomon sum up his wasted life. Ecclesiastes 1.14. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as an, as an old man, looking back on his life. Looking back on his life, he had all of the money one could want. All of the fame one could want. Uh, all, all of the property and housing and all of the nice cars of the day, the chariots, all the riders, right? He had all the sex that this world tells you you ought to have. And what did he say? He said, it's all emptiness. It's all vanity. It all means nothing. He declares it's all vanity. This brings me back to our text about loving the world. It's all vanity. It's emptiness. This world has nothing to offer us but emptiness and regret. Think about that. Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's dressed up nice, isn't it? The glitz and glamour of this world. The glitz and glamour of fame. I saw just a couple days ago some famous YouTube or TikTok star committed suicide. So much for the joy of the world, right? You know why? You know what they said? Life was just empty. Fame, money, and emptiness. That's what the world offers us. The world's offering us some phony, dressed-up mannequin that's not real. It's not real. This world is opposed to Jesus Christ. When John says here, don't love the world, he's saying... This world is opposed to Jesus Christ. You can't love Christ and love this world. You can't. They're bitter enemies. They're not neutral. John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hated me hated my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus said, now that I've come, they have no cloak. They have nothing to hide their sin. Right? God has appeared in the flesh and condemned sin. There's no, no one can say they didn't know. No one. Especially in the 21st century. We have unparalleled access to the word of God. Nobody who has ever walked this earth can access the Bible like we can today. Nobody from this generation will stand before God and be like, I didn't know. I didn't know. They know, right? They know. He says, I appeared and they hated both me and the Father. The world's not neutral. It's not. It hates Christ because Christ condemns their sin. And they love their sin more than they love God. 
So they hate the God that would condemn their sin. Let me give you a good example of this. Uh, Martin Luther, you guys ever heard of him? A little Catholic priest a couple hundred years ago? Martin Luther was not, not a bad priest as far as priests go. He, he wanted to be sincere in his religion, right? He thought he could earn God's favor like, like Roman Catholics do. So he tried to be the best priest he could be. He said if other monks prayed for six hours, he prayed for 10 hours. If they said 100 you know, prayers, I said 200 prayers. I wanted to give God more than everybody else. But then he found that one verse in the Bible that he's famous for, where it says, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther said, before his conversion, he said, I hated the God who demanded perfection from me. Because he realized that no matter how much he did, how many good works he did, God demands perfection. And he said, I hated that God. Because he knew he was a sinner, he couldn't be perfect. That's the problem. The world hates Christ because they don't want to give up their sin. Now, thankfully, Martin Luther realized that perfection is achieved not by earning God's favor, but we receive it passively by faith. We believe God and it's counted to us for righteousness. But the problem is this world does not want to give up its sin. It doesn't. If we could live in the world and be Christians, there'd be no conflict. There'd be no conflict at all. The conflict arises because Christ has demanded we flee from our sin and follow him. The world's not neutral. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hated me because I testify of it. The works thereof are evil. Don't get this confused. They're not opposed to religion. One time I was listening to a radio program, late night, I was driving, and he said, I, I, I want to spend the whole program to uncover the nature of evil. We know there's evil in the world, so we want to uncover the true nature of evil. But, he said, there's one rule. He's going to take callers. He said, there's one rule, callers. No mention of Jesus or the Bible. You know why? Because he's saying, I want answers as long as that's not the answer. I want answers as long as that's not the answer. Because they hate Christ. Not because they love Christ. They only love Jesus if it's the Jesus they make up in their own mind. That Jesus they love, right? There's lots of churches today, lots of people out there today in church who got bright flashy lights, right? And smoke screens on the stage. And they're worshiping Jesus, you know. Ironically, this Jesus they're worshiping is okay with all of their sins, right? But that's not the Jesus from the Bible, they divorce the name from the person in the Bible, and they say, well, I love Jesus, but this Jesus I love, he's okay with my sins. And somebody else who has different sins goes, well, my Jesus, have you ever heard someone say, my Jesus wouldn't do that? My Jesus wouldn't say that. You know why? Because your Jesus doesn't exist. There's one Jesus he's revealed in the Bible. We have to follow him, but the world hates him. So we can't follow him and follow the world. We can't. Right? Not because he hates the world, right? God so loved the world. But he hates the sin of the world. But the world hates him because he hates their sin. Because they love their sin more than Jesus. So when John says, love not the world, he's not trying to ruin our fun. He's not trying to make our lives boring. 
He's saying that if you love Jesus, you cannot love those who hate Jesus. Mostly because they won't let you. They're not going to let you run with them and hold on to him. They're not going to do it. God takes false worship seriously. Don't believe for a second that atheists and seculars are non-religious. Okay? They, they are religions. God equates false religion with adultery. He equates worldliness with false religion. Listen to James 4.4. 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Why is John saying, love not the world? Because James is telling us that those who love the world are enemies of God. He's caring for their souls. He's telling them, you can't walk in both worlds. You can't walk in both camps. It doesn't work. Say, well, yeah, spiritual adultery is going off and chasing after statues and bowing down. No, no. James is calling them adulterers and adulteresses because of their friendship with the world. Worldliness is false religion to God. It is a religion. From this, we can conclude that worldliness is spiritual adultery. God is a jealous God. He expects and deserves our full fidelity. Exodus 20, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God hates adultery, especially spiritual adultery. He condemned it in his own people. Jeremiah three twenty. Surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. Isaiah 121, how is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. He's saying, you were a bride. You were, you were a beautiful virgin bride, and now you've, you've treacherously left your husband. You've gone after other lovers, after other, other relationships. You've left me. You've, you've committed adultery. He takes it seriously. So for us to come in and say, well, that was, that was, that was, that was then. Now he's, He's a-okay. We can live however we want and just still follow Christ. No. No. God takes it just as serious today as he did back then. Full fidelity. There is no other God beside him. So even if that God you're chasing isn't a golden calf, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a green $50, bill. I don't care if it's a nice home, a luxury car, a yacht, a career, a spouse, or a relationship of some sort, or just yourself, right? Solomon spent his whole life just, hey, if I saw it, I liked it, I treated myself to it. Who was Solomon's God? Solomon was Solomon's God. That's the, that's the truth. But Solomon realized one thing. When Solomon got old, he didn't look back and give advice and go, you know what? Do what I did. Treat yourself. You only live once. Have a good time. No. He said, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He summed up all of life and said, fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Walk with God and serve God. That's the only place to find fulfillment. Solomon filled up his wants and desires with everything that he could, and he walked away at the end and goes, man, that was empty. Man, that was nothing. I wasted my life. I'm not going to read it for time, but if you get a chance, read Revelation 17, 1 through 6. The whore of Babylon. She's a spiritual whore. 
She committed spiritual adultery. What does God do with her? Does he turn a blind eye? Is he the God of the Gnostics? He says, well, you can, you can dally over here in the world and, and with me at the same time. No. Verse 16 of Revelation 17 says, The ten horns which, which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And later in that same chapter, it says that they're doing what God put in their heart to do. In other words, God destroys this spiritual adulteress. He puts it in their heart to destroy her because he's not okay with a foot over here and a foot over here. He demands full allegiance. You say, that's narrow-minded. Absolutely it is. Now we're getting somewhere because there's one true God. There's one true God. Those with whom she commits fornication in Revelation 17 turn against her and become the source of her own destruction. This world cares nothing for people. It uses them and spits them out. And I've seen many, many people leave church, get drawn into this world system, and the world system chews them up and spits them out, and it becomes the source of their... I've sat in church with people who are dead today from heroin overdose and cocaine overdose. I'm not kidding. People I sat in church with because they went after the world because it was more fun. It was more exciting. I'm still a Christian. That world wasn't there for them in the end. That world cared nothing for their soul. It cared nothing for them. It drew them in with promises of fun and excitement and glamour and glitz and all these things. And it left them dead. It left them to perish. It didn't care for them at all. The world does to all of his followers as happened to the whore in Revelation. It promises a good time and then destroys them. This world system has left a long line of empty, shattered lives and unfulfilled promises. Look at Hollywood if you want that. A good example of that. Trace Hollywood back a hundred years. This is not new, okay? Hollywood didn't just lately become evil. This goes back over 100 years. And you'll find the scandals and the tragedies and the emptiness. I remember hearing about uh, Peg Entwistle. You guys ever heard that name? Actress who jumped off the Hollywood sign and killed herself back in the 1930s. All because she got a part in the movie and her part was cut. And this young 22-year-old figured, I have no life. It's all over now. There's nothing ahead of me. Nothing to live for. You know what she was saying when she did that? Her, her act was a statement of, it's all emptiness. It's all empty. Can you imagine at 22? I'm 40. I, I can't imagine at 22 saying, it's just emptiness. There's nothing left. But that's what the world does. That's what the world does. Jesus said those who come to him will never hunger or thirst, John 6, 35. He promises true, lasting, and eternal satisfaction. When we look to the world for satisfaction, we find temporal pleasures and eternal devastation. Those who look to this world for satisfaction find a dry, empty well. That's why John's saying don't love the world. He's not saying that to ruin our fun or to make life boring or to control us or manipulate us. 
He's speaking as a father speaks to a child out of care and concern. Well, I tell my kids, don't run in the middle of the road. I'm not doing it because I don't want them to have fun. I don't want them to die. I want the car to come and run them over, right? And when John writes in the Bible and says, don't love the world, we don't, we don't need to look at that and say, oh, he just doesn't want me to have any fun. He's saying, no, 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 no. I've seen what's out there. I know what's out there. Don't do it. It's dangerous. It's empty. There's nothing for us out there. It's a dry well. Christ is the eternal fountain of life. He brings eternal satisfaction to those who drink from him. Why would we turn from him and love that which will destroy us? We would do well to make the same confession as Peter in John 6, 68. It says, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Remember that, John 6? Jesus says, are you going to go away too? Peter says, who who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where are you going to go? You're standing in the presence of God. What do they have to offer you where they're going that he can't offer you much better over here, right? If we are saved, if we have come to know the living God, why would we let ourselves be drawn away to this world? Where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? It's an empty well. Even the secularists can't find satisfaction there. Even the heathens are empty over there. Why would I leave the fountain of life and go to an empty dry well? So when John says, don't love the world, he's saying, where are you going to go in the world? Where they're unsatisfied? It's not greener grass. They don't like it over there. (laughs) They're killing themselves to get out of there. Where are you going to go, Christian? How are you going to walk away from the Lord? If you've truly known and met the one true God, the fountain of life. Those who chase after the world are grasping at the wind, but they'll never find it. It's all vanity. Solomon, the man who had it all, is a a testimony to us. It's all vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all vexation of spirit. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come, buy, and eat. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the offer of salvation? Just come. Just come. Well, I don't have any money to buy food or drink. Then come without money and buy it anyway. How do you buy without money? Unless someone's purchased it for you already. Right? That's the call to salvation. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which satisfieth not. What a message to the world. Come, take freely of the bread of life. Come without, without cost, without payment. Don't bring your good works. Don't bring your, your Ten Commandments. Don't, don't bring your, your religiosity, right? Don't bring your best effort. Just come and take what's already been purchased. Why are you wasting your life and your your money for that which doesn't satisfy? This world is doing that. They're spending money. They're spending their lives for things that will never bring them satisfaction. Christian, don't you be drawn away into that lie. Don't waste your life. Don't waste what God has given you on that which is not going to satisfy. When you have come to the one who has purchased for you the bread of life and the fountain of life. So that first command in verse 15, don't love the world. Second command, 
neither the things that are in the world. So don't love the world itself. We belong to a different world. We're only sojourners here. And then he says, don't love the things of the world. This is very similar to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 3, right? Before the, when they're going into the promised land, he gives them the warning. Don't do like the nations before you did. Don't worship in the way they worshiped. Don't live in the way they lived. Same kind of warning. He warned them not to follow the practices and worship of the nations under judgment. What are these things in the world that we're not supposed to love? He lists them here for us. Verse 16, look at that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So he mentions here the lust of the flesh. What is that? That refers to all sexual sins of all sorts. The lust of the flesh. Those things that would draw us into uh, uncleanness, right? Israel did this. Solomon did this with his many wives. The false teachers in the early church did this. According to the Jew, they turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, right? They were involved in all kinds of sexual sins. The Gnostics did this as well. Many Christians today believe that you can make a profession of faith and live however you want to. It's okay. It's okay. You're still a Christian. I, th I believe a Christian can sin. I believe a Christian can backslide. But if your profession of faith is, I'm a Christian, I love God, and I'm living in sexual perversion, let me tell you something. I have reason to doubt the sincerity of your profession of faith. Amen. Let's just be honest. James chapter 2 gives us a good example of that, right? Abraham and Isaac. When he sacrificed Isaac, it didn't save him. But his sacrificing Isaac justified his profession of faith. It evidenced that his profession was true. If Abraham had said, yes, God, I believe you, but no, I'm not going to offer my son as a sacrifice. I think God would have sufficient ground to say, you don't truly believe me, right? It evidenced that his faith was true. When Rahab, another one that James uses, Rahab, right? When she sent the spies off with peace, that justified her, not her salvation, but it justified her faith. So she claimed, we know you're the one true God. We know that, that your God is the true God and he's, he's going to take this city, you know, and, and, and he, he's, he's true and he's not a lie. And so they said, well, we're going to save you, put this, put this in the window, and your house will be safe. If she didn't do that, what she's saying by her actions is, I don't really believe that he's the one true God who's going to save us. Right? So you make a profession of faith, and you go off in this world and live in sin. What you're saying by your actions is, I don't really believe the things that I profess to believe. How can a Christian live unashamedly in the sins for which Jesus died. Think about that. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. This refers to wanting and pursuing anything our heart desires. We see it, we want it, we have to have it. To sum it up, it's covetousness. It's covetousness. This covetousness often leads to sins of excess like Solomon. By the way, the lust of the, the, lust of the flesh part, a gateway to that is the lust of the eyes. You see it. You, listen, nobody ever cheated on his wife in a moment. No wife ever cheated on her husband in a moment. I'm not going to wake up one morning and go, I think I'm going to walk out on her today. No, it happens right here at first. And it gets back up in here. And you entertain thoughts and ideas. And that lust builds up. And then pretty soon, you have to have it. I'm not going to withhold it from myself. I'm going to give myself to that thing. There's a process there that we have to stamp out right away as Christians. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2.10, Whatsoever mine eyes desire, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. 
This was my portion of all my labor. Covetousness. This covetousness led David to an affair with Bathsheba through the lust of the eyes. He gave himself over to uncleanness. This was the chief, or, sorry, the next was the pride of life. This refers to pride in seeking pomp and glory, seeking position and renown, making ourselves great. This was the chief sin of the Pharisees. We see evidence in men like Diotrephes in 3 John chapter, or chapter, well, 3 John verse 9. Eve was drawn away in her desire to know what God knew. This is why we have the repeated admonition to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Because the pride of life will creep in there. That was, that's, what, that's what got to Eve, you know. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I want that. I want to be like God. I want to have all knowledge. I wish I knew all things. Boy, I could be somebody great. Why should he be better than me? That's the pride of life. So we know the command. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. Don't love uncleanness. Don't love it. Some people love uncleanness. They're drawn to it. We have a, we have a term for it nowadays. It's, I was made this way. No, you love uncleanness. Don't love covetousness. We've got to be very careful about this in America, don't we? We're probably the richest people who've ever lived on the earth. Even our poor people have technology and, I mean, the pride of life. The desire to be somebody special. To have a name. To be remembered. It's a great temptation to love those things. So we know the command, but why not love the world? The first answer is in verse 15. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're told, don't love the world, don't love the things in the world. Pride, covetousness, uncleanness. Why? Why? You ever ask that question? Why? Just because I said so. It's not, God doesn't do that with us. He's not saying just because I said so. He's telling us why. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Be careful about loving this world. It will creep out the love of God in your heart. We have deceived ourselves into believing the two are compatible, and they are not. 2 Timothy 4.10 says, For demons have forsaken me, having loved this present world. Let me clear something up real quickly as I wind this down. Demas didn't leave the Apostle Paul because he was afraid of persecution. Or because he didn't believe in God anymore. He didn't say he was an atheist. He left Paul because he loved the present world. He loved what this world offered him more than he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's fair to say, even though the Bible doesn't spell it out, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of maybe step where I shouldn't step and say, Demas loved uncleanness and sexual satisfaction outside of the bounds that God had set. I think Demas loved the pride of life. I think he loved position. And I think he had covetousness. I think he saw things. Oh, I wish I had that. But let me tell you something. We're 2,000 years removed from that incident now where he left the Apostle Paul. And I promise you, wherever Demas is right this second, his word to us would be, it's not worth it. It's a dry well. It's vanity. It's vanity. So the first reason that God has given us these commands is you cannot love God and love this world. 
I'm telling you right now. Don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, I'll just go out and dally in the world. And it won't, I'll still go to church. It won't affect me at all. It will affect you. You can't walk in both worlds. And then secondly, the second reason is found in verse 17. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Everything we see is temporary. Our lives are temporary. Like a mist, we appear for a short time and then vanish away, James 4, 14. Uh, I have strange hobbies. Uh, one of those strange hobbies is I like to go to uh, old celebrities' homes and their graves and take pictures. I use this example a lot, but uh, did anybody here know the name Jack Benny? Let's see. Show of hands. Anybody know? Some hands. I actually, when I ask that question on the streets, I get almost no hands. But I've been to Jack Benny's house, Beverly Hills. Beautiful home. When I ask that question, the most, in most crowds, very few hands go up because very few people know who Jack Benny is. See, I was raised with, uh, heavily by my grandmother, so I, I grew up listening to old radio shows and the old black and white television. I know all those people, but a lot of this generation doesn't know those people. My wife didn't know who they were until I introduced them to her. But you know what? As I stood outside Jack Benny's home, his daughter said he wasn't a religious man, that comedy was his religion. What an empty religion. Because today, somebody else lives in his house. The car in the driveway isn't his. In fact, there's a, there's a good chance, being 2022 now, the people who live in his house don't even know who he was. But he gave his whole life to achieve fame and fortune in that mansion in Beverly Hills that now somebody else uses the pool. Somebody else lives in the living room. Somebody else uses the driveway. He left it all behind. And now his fame has gone so much that in most groups that I ask that question, very few hands even know who the man is anymore. But his religion, his worship was tied up. It's like grasping the wind. He could never achieve. Even the immortality a superstar like him in his day would want to achieve. Can you believe there's people I know today who don't know who Michael Jackson is? He died much more recently. Less than 20 years ago. They just don't know. These people who chase after the world, they're just grasping at the wind, trying to gather the wind in their arms, and it escapes them every time. As a young person, I try to impress a lot of people. You guys all, you guys all know, right? I wanted to be one of the cool kids in school. I went to a Christian school, but we still had our kind of bad, edgy kids. I wanted so much for them to like me. I didn't want to be the goody two-shoes. I wanted the cool kids to like me. I did a lot of stuff just to impress them. I did bad stuff and I felt bad about doing the bad stuff, but I wanted them to like me. You know what's crazy about that? Here I am, 40 years old, and I don't even know any of them anymore. I have like 700 Facebook friends, none of them are those people. And almost a dozen of them are dead today from drug overdoses. I was chasing after the approval of people who today wouldn't pick, be able to pick me out of a crowd, out of a lineup, wouldn't know my name if I walked up to them and started talking to them. It's so fleeting. But you know who knows my name? Jesus Christ. You know who knew me back then? Christ. He's eternal. He doesn't forget us. He inscribes us on the palm of his hand. See, chasing after the world was an empty well for me. 
I could never achieve what I wanted to achieve. And even if I did achieve it, one day it would all be gone and people would forget who I was. But those who come to Jesus, those who follow him, they find eternal satisfaction. So how do we keep? How do we keep from worldliness? How do we keep from being drawn away in the world? Here's the answer. Make sure you're finding your satisfaction in Christ. Make sure you're finding your identity in Christ. Make sure you're coming to Christ daily for food and for drink. It can't be a Sunday thing. It can't be a Thursday night thing. It's got to be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And take time once in a while to look around you. Look around at this world. Look around at people you know in the world who are unsatisfied, who are miserable in their lives, and realize that Christ is the fountain of satisfaction. Christ is the bread of life. Those who come to him will never hunger, will never thirst. Don't love this world, folks, because if you do, you're demonstrating the love of the Father is not in you. And this world's passing away. The world's passing away. Those who follow after the world will perish with the world. But those who do the will of God abide forever. To be satisfied in him, to find fulfillment in Christ, to find Christ as our greatest treasure. You know why Christians are leaving the church today? Because Christ isn't their greatest treasure. That's what it is. You guys, you guys remember the parable of the treasure hidden in the field? Man buys the field because he knows the treasure is there. I'm sure people looked at him and thought, that's a crazy dude. It's just a field. Why are you selling everything you have to buy this field? But see, he knew there's a treasure in that field. And I want that treasure. And people may look at you, Christian, and say, what are you giving your life to Christ for? What are you going to church for? What do you read your Bible for? We want to go do this? Oh, you can't do Oh, the Bible says you can't do that. Oh. But you know, I know, there's a treasure in that field called Christ. A treasure that is worth more. Because even if you gain the entire world, you lose your soul, when, you, when that moment comes that you die, everything you gain, you leave behind. And you enter eternity stripped and bare and empty-handed. But Christ... <laughs> He's the everlasting fountain. So what do we do? Well, we go out and we preach Christ. We find our satisfaction in Christ. Listen, listen, guys, don't, you have a wonderful church here. Don't look at your numbers and get discouraged. What does that song say? Though none go with me, still I will follow. Keep following Christ. Keep finding satisfaction in Christ. Keep preaching Christ to the lost. And when you find people who are looking for satisfaction, bring them to Christ and say, this is where I find my satisfaction. Keep being satisfied in Christ. Keep following him. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. See, but it's more fun. For a short time. For a short time. And you're left empty-handed again. But Christ offers us eternal treasure, eternal pleasure, eternal satisfaction. But we can't walk in both worlds. You have to reject this world and embrace Christ. And let me encourage you, church, embrace Christ. Grab on with both hands and don't let go. 
because he is eternal satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. I know it went a little bit longer than I planned, but oh Lord. If there's anybody in this building who's not saved today, they don't know you as Savior, oh, I pray they come and and drink of that water and buy that, that wine and that milk without price, without payment. You've paid it already. You took upon yourself our guilt, our punishment, so that we can be declared not guilty before you, Lord. If anybody here is without you, I pray that they wouldn't leave this place without you. Maybe there's some here who have made a profession of faith in the past, but they know in their heart of hearts that they, they weren't truly repentant of their sins. Oh, they'd make that right today. But Lord, I pray, I think, I think most people here are probably Christians. I pray for their endurance. I pray that you would give them a love for you that this world could never match. Give them satisfaction. Feed them with that bread of life, Lord. I pray that no one will be drawn away. It's such foolishness, Lord, this world. It's such foolishness to think that we could find satisfaction in the same place where the heathen cannot find satisfaction. But Lord, many a heathen has turned to you. I've seen murderers. I've seen child molesters. I've seen rapists. I've seen thieves. I've seen prostitutes. I've seen drunkards, all of them, personally. I've known and met these people who turned to you and they found you a fountain of satisfaction. Oh Lord, may we be satisfied with Jesus. May we be satisfied. May we see the treasure that is the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.